We'll hear argument next to number 97, 6146, Angel Monje v. California. Spectators are admonished, do not talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Gardner. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. If the judge in this case or the jury had found sufficient evidence to sustain the charged allegation, and the State Court of Appeal had affirmed that finding, that judgment as to my client would have been final. I could not go into State Court and panel a new fact finder and try it again. This case arises or presents the flip side of the question. Uh, could, could you in other states, or is that a peculiarity under California law, or is this just um, a rule of finality that prevails, you think, in most jurisdictions? You just know no way to reopen it. My guess is that it's a rule of finality. Newly discovered evidence can't reopen? Well, there could be a collateral attack, certainly. But, there, but I could not go in with, in the absence of, of some kind of new evidence, the case would be final on direct appeal as to, as to my client. But uh, any number of collateral attacks might be possible. Certainly. There's a presence of collateral attacks, new evidence, if there was uh, suppressed evidence. But this case presents the flip side of, of, of the factual scenario I started with, where there's been a finding of insufficient evidence. And the question is, a finding by the appellate court, does that finding uh, have any finality? The question in this case is, does double jeopardy prevent the state from going in and relitigating well, the case? Does, does California have, a, uh, in, in your first hypothetical, if, assuming you lose, and you find there was something wrong, there was not really a prior conviction, there's no motion to modify the sentence uh, after the court has affirmed the conviction? The man has served for a year, and all of a sudden we find out that the three strikes doesn't like. He can't go into the Superior Court of the State of California and ask for, to modify the sentence? He could seek a, a writ of habeas corpus, or if the, if the trial court still had jurisdiction, perhaps, uh, there are collateral attacks that could be made on that sentence, absolutely. And, of course, the state can't collaterally attack a sentence. The state is bound by what happens on direct review. There is, no, under the Double Jeopardy Clause, the state has no right to collaterally attack or direct attack well, the judgment but, of acquittal. But the, the state, there's simply no proceeding available. If, if a, say, the jury acquits your client, there's no proceeding available whereby the state could appeal and say, probably because of Double Jeopardy, that the, this, this was a wrong result. I think that's right. Because of the Double Jeopardy Clause, there is no right to appeal a jury's finding or a jury verdict of acquittal. Uh, the question really gets at in this situation is the tension, I think, that the court addressed in Berks versus United States, the possible distinction between a judgment of acquittal by an appellate court and a judgment of acquittal by a jury. Well, of course, it's not just a judgment. You're saying that a judgment of acquittal is the same thing as a sentencing determination. Well, for purposes of the distinction between an appellate court's finding and a jury verdict, uh, the distinction that the court was referring to in Burks, the question is, should those two be treated differently? There, there may be other reasons why a sentence enhancement trial is not subject to double jeopardy, and we're certainly going to talk about those. I, I hope you will, yeah. I suspect. But for, for purposes of the distinction between a trial acquittal and a, 
appellate acquittal, Burke suggests that there's no rational reason why there should be a difference. In both situations, the treatment should be the same. Otherwise, the uh, petitioner or the appellant is, is arbitrarily deprived of, of some right simply because the trial-level fact finder made the, wrong, uh, made the wrong call. Well, now, historically, I guess we have not thought that um, sentencing aspects uh, are covered by the double jeopardy clause for most crimes, have we? That's, that's correct. And if uh, there were a judge imposing a sentence in a case and uh, imposes it, and then the defendant who was sentenced appeals on the ground that the judge imposed a sentence not authorized by law and prevails, then I suppose it would be remanded for resentencing. Yes, it, you wouldn't be arguing double jeopardy. I certainly wouldn't, or certainly not here. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that would not be under the court's precedence. Uh, double jeopardy plainly does not apply to uh, decisions made at traditional sentencing hearings. Right. That's not what this case uh, is but all about. But you say that this is different because of the special procedures that California employs in the context of this sentencing. Yes. In all respects, the sentencing in this case is identical to a trial on guilt or innocence. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt, notice, the right to confrontation, uh, the right to a jury verdict. California was foolish to provide those protections. You're, you're, you're saying California should have simply left it up to the judge to find those, uh, those aggravating factors by a preponderance of the evidence. And in that case, if the judge was reversed, you'd be able to send it back and have it found again. Right. Well, I, I don't agree with the predicate that California was foolish for doing it. I think there were sound, the sound policy reasons that the legislature had for giving these rights. These but your argument is so counterintuitive that the more protection the state gives to the, uh, to the defendant, the worse shape the state is in as far as being able to resentence if, uh, if, if it's overturned on appeal. What do you want to punish the state for being... Uh, being more concerned about the prisoner's rights and instead of letting the judge find it by a preponderance, saying we're going to insist that it be found by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I don't view it as punishing the state. This is the argument that's been made by, by some of the amicus, so-called no good deed goes unpunished, which is certainly an... I, I didn't think of that. <laughs> then I'm sorry I suggested it. But are you accepting, uh, you are accepting that California, unlike the death situation where there has to be a procedure to present the mitigators and the aggravators, and that for this kind of sentencing, it isn't required to have a trial-type hearing at all. Yes. You're conceding that. Well, certainly, perhaps three weeks ago, I could have made a different argument. Uh, in light of Armendariz-Torres, I don't think I'm in a position to make that argument, and so I'm not going to make that argument. What I am saying is that when a state elects to treat this just as a trial on guilt or innocence, then there are some consequences. Because when the state is enacting this legislation, there really are two models, generally in criminal law. We have uh, the traditional guilt or innocence model, which has all the rights, that all the constitutional rights that typically attach to such proceedings. And we have traditional sentencing. And the legislature in this case did not choose the traditional sentencing model, which we but all know... Why is the state locked into two models? Why can't a state say, look, we want to give him some kind of hearing, but we won't, don't want it to be... We don't want to get into the Bullington mode. So is, are you really saying that as a matter, matter of constitutional law, the state is frozen into that stark choice? N- no. Either and I, no hearing or give him the full dress hearing with the double jeopardy? I didn't mean to suggest that. If I did, then I misspoke. 
What I'm suggesting is that as a practical matter, when you look at the statutes that the states have enacted, when you, when you look at 50 statutes as to sentence enhancements, what you see is state legislatures choosing from two models. Now, I, I agree they don't have to, but as a practical matter, that's what we see. We see either a selection of a trial model with all the rights, or we see selection of a traditional sentencing model. But this isn't exactly one or the other, is it? Because although you, you said in a conclusory way a moment ago that this, in fact, is the choice of the trial model, there are at least two respects in which it's different from the usual trial model and different from what was involved in Bullington. Number one, although in one respect there is a so-called binary choice here, the binary choice nonetheless operates in a sentencing proceeding in which there is the traditional judicial discretion to set the base sentence upon which the binary multi the multiplier will, will be applied. And number two, as I understand it, in this case, the state has an appeal, which the state does, does not normally have uh, in, in the traditional model. So we're somewhere in between, it seems to me, here. I, I don't think so. And, and, and let me, if I can, take them one at a time. Uh, as, as to the first point, the point that, that although the the jury is making, a, or the fact finder is making a binary determination. Ultimately, there's discretion at sentencing to choose from a, among the various uh, sentencing options. And in fact, I, perhaps I didn't speak properly on that. I, the discretion is even greater than that, isn't it? I mean, is it, is it the judge or the jury that can decide for policy reasons that, in fact, the, uh, the, the, the so-called strike scheme shouldn't apply? One of them can. Well, with respect to all sentence enhancement allegations in California, whether it's uh, current conduct enhancements such as firearm use or great bodily injury yeah. or a strikes allegation, there's a right to a jury. And the jury or the judge, if the jury is waived, is the fact finder for purposes of making the determination as to whether the state has presented ins uh, sufficient okay. evidence. But it isn't, even beyond sufficiency of evidence, uh, isn't there also a discretionary element somewhere? After the, the fact finding stage where the jury or the judge, if a jury is waived, makes a determination that yes, the firearm use has been proved, or yes, the strike allegation has been proved. The judge has discretion under California law, under Section 1385, to dismiss that in the interest of justice. That, that may be what Your Honor is Okay. Uh, that's, that's a much broader discretion than, than we find in any trial. Uh, well, actually, actually, trial scheme. actually, under California law, it isn't, Judge. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Because don't, don't worry, I don't regard it as insult. <laughs> it isn't because... What we see in trials on substantive offenses in California is that very same power under Section 1385. That in no way distinguishes a trial on, a, on a sentence enhancement allegation from a trial on a substantive offense under California law. You mean if someone is, is charged with armed robbery and the case is proved and so on, the judge says, well, I think in the interest of justice this should be dismissed? The, ju the, the judge under California law can dismiss any allegation in the interest of justice. Really? So in that okay, sense... Okay, so we're back to my original two. I put you off your, your argument. We're back to my original two. Uh, the two distinctions from the North. Yes, you may be, Your Honor, but I uh, have forgotten them. Okay, fair, <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, I said there's, there's discretion uh, in the sentencing function uh, in deciding sort of the basic uh, sentence to which the multiplier will, will be applied, uh, and, uh, and secondly, there's a state appeal. Yes, uh, as to the first of those, there is discretion when we come to sentencing for the trial court to choose among the appropriate sentences. Uh, and yes, that is not a binary decision. That, that is the traditional normative decision that is made at, at sentencing hearings. And I'm not suggesting for a moment double jeopardy applies to that situation. What I am suggesting is that in the separate hearing, and often it's, it's combined directly with the trial on guilt or innocence, when the jury has reached a verdict on a firearm use allegation or on a strike allegation, 
that binary determination, yes, the defendant had a gun, no, the defendant didn't have a gun, or yes, you've proven the, the strike, no, you didn't. It's that binary determination to which double jeopardy applies. Okay. In, in, in fact, you're... Go ahead. I'm just going to say, you're arguing for something a little different, I guess, from, from what was involved in Bullington. So I thought, I thought in Bullington, the sentencing proceeding was regarded as one, in effect, unitary proceeding, and, and you're now saying, well, there are two subparts of the sentencing proceeding. Double jeopardy applies to one but not to the other. I think as a, as a matter of, uh, of the facts of Bullington, it turned out that they were the same. The jury's sentence both on the, on the factual determination and the sentence was the same. Uh, but I think that, that, that the critical component, if I had to break them out, would be the binary determination of fact that was made, and that's made here. It's I, that excuse me, I, I thought you were through with your answer. May I ask you if you can do it in just a sentence or two, because I don't want to take too much of your time, to state the argument you would have made if we hadn't decided Almadar's the other, other way a few days ago? If Almadar's Torres had, had been decided differently or n- perhaps not, not, not been here, I, I probably would have placed a greater significance on the fact that the additional exposure to punishment that a client faces under a three strikes or a firearm use allegation is, is so high that that uh, in itself should, could And it could cannot trigger. be imposed unless this critical finding is made by the fact finder. Yes, that, that's right, Your Honor. Mr. Garnick, even though uh, Almodar's source has been decided, uh, isn't, it, isn't it possible? All, all that said is that uh, recidivism, it doesn't say that recidivism laws must be non-elements. It just says that they may be. And isn't it open to us to find that even if the state calls it a sentencing enhancement, if in fact it is treating it with a separate jury trial beyond the reasonable doubt finding and whatnot, in fact it's not just a, a, just a sentencing enhancement. In fact, the state is treating it as an element of the offense. And if it is an element of the offense, then by reason of normal double jeopardy principles and not the invention of some new double jeopardy application to things that aren't elements of the offense, your client would be entitled uh, not to be tried again. Oh, I agree, and that's, that's precisely the argument I'm trying to make. Well, I don't think you made the argument. You, no, you, you've never come out and, and, and confronted the state and, and said, even though they say it's an enhancement, it's not an enhancement. It's actually an element. Then let, let me state it, state it now, if I haven't before. The label that's attached, whether it's enhancement or whether they call it trial, is of no moment to the double jeopardy analysis. What's important in the double jeopardy analysis are three things. Does the fact expose the defendant to additional punishment? Does it have the hallmarks of trial, particularly proof beyond a reasonable doubt? And is it a binary determination? Now, what's your authority for those three propositions? Uh, the hallmarks of trial, of course, stems from Bullington. Yes. The, exposure to, the fact that exposes to additional punishment really stems from some of the due process cases this court has, has so announced. So you're not relying on any one case then? No, I, I think one of the problems with some of the double jeopardy uh, cases or, or the analysis is that there are a number of different uh, policies on which the double jeopardy clause is implicated. So it isn't always possible to rely on one case to establish or set forth the framework. I'm trying to pull from the court's precedents what I see happening, and that is in the due process cases, Speck and Chandler and Schooning, the court said, this is a new fact. It exposes you to additional punishment, so we're not going to treat it like traditional sentencing. And I'm suggesting that take that analysis into the double jeopardy context because at some level I think it makes sense. Well, but what do you do with a due process case like North Carolina against Pierce? Well, I don't think Pierce... uh, Pierce Pierce says you can get a tougher sentence on on, uh, resentencing. Yes, 
I have no problem with that. The, the difference between this case and Pierce, of course, is what the state is suggesting here is that despite the fact that it had one full bite at the apple and presented insufficient evidence, which is conceded, they get another trial. Well, that's not the only difference. Yeah. Pierce also didn't involve, uh, didn't involve a, a, a sentence uh, that, uh, uh, a fact that increased the, uh, the sentence to which the uh, defendant was, was exposed. It was all within the range of the, uh, of the original crime. Well, well, that, that, that too, well, that's about, crucial. If, if, if you're going to say, even though this looks like an enhancement, it smells like an enhancement, it's not an enhancement. It seems to me you have to say not only because we gave it a jury trial, but also because the effect of the fact found is to increase the criminal liability of the individual. Well, I, I agree. It is crucial, and that's why the first Wait, part... I don't understand. Why isn't the, this charming book is the sentencing guidelines? Uh, let's imagine the federal... Uh, it has, uh, let's say, 800 or 1,000 different factors. Why, in, in your view, is it the case that all of these findings that the judges make, of course, are yes or no? I mean, they did it or they didn't. There's, there's a lot of enhancements in there. And moreover, the judge makes it, and uh, then the person's exposed to higher punishment. In your view, the double jeopardy clause apply to each of those? No. Why not? Because although the sentencing guidelines are a way to increase punishment, it increases it within a previously prescribed range. In no way can a sentencing guideline finding expose the defendant to punishment in addition. Oh, so, so if, in fact, this book had been enacted by Congress, rather than delegating the power to the agency, i.e. the commission, then, in your view, the double jeopardy clause would apply? No, no actually, and if, if, if I express that view, then again, I misspoke. When I, I don't think you did. I'm, I'm trying to understand no. what, why not. No, I think the difference is this. As, as I understand the sentencing guidelines, what they do is assist the judge in selecting a sentence from among a previously prescribed range of sentences. That's what they do, as opposed to the distinction... It says, it says in the statute, uh, it says in the statute, say, zero to 20 years. And within that, uh, 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 these are factors. And you're saying it's the zero to 20 years and th that makes the difference. It, that's part of the difference. Yeah. That's part of the difference. What that's else? the first part. The second part is that my understanding of the sentencing guidelines is that none of them have the hallmarks of trial in the sense that there's no proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, th that has never been decided. I mean, I think in this court, in this court it hasn't. The, 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 uh, uh, all right, Homer. Uh, now, in California, my understanding is that the California did try to adopt a system that they intended to be like the sentencing guidelines. But instead of doing it uh, through delegation to a commission, uh, what they did is the set of statutory provisions that we have here. Uh, they give three choices. They, you know, they, they, they have whole, low, medium, and high. They build all the things into the statute, just as uh, that's my correct understanding, isn't it? Yes. All right. So, so why, if this is constitutional, should the effort to, uh, uh, without double jeopardy, why should the effort of the state legislature to do roughly the same kind of thing through a set of statutes uh, suddenly expose a person to double jeopardy. Well, the difference isn't between a statute and a regulation. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that the California system of what we call determinate sentencing law, where the judge chooses from two, three, or four years, uh, where, where choices within that previously prescribed range are subject to double jeopardy. What I'm saying is that the very separate factual determination which exposes someone to 25 years to life in addition to that four years, that's imposed on top of the four years, and that could not be imposed in the absence of a finding, that binary determination is subject to the double jeopardy. Gardner, you, you, you don't what? think that this court would have permitted judges to participate in the drafting and promulgation of the guidelines if they were functionally the same as legislation, do you? Actually, I'd rather not express an op opinion on that. <laughs> 
Now, you don't think that's relevant to this case, do you? Uh, That's certainly not at issue in this case. May I I ask you this? Going to the discretionary model, uh, the trial judge says, I've I've weighed all of of the factors, and I'm giving you a sentence of of five years. Uh, Four years later, after he has, and we has only one year, uh, under a state procedure, it comes back before the trial judge. He said, I've changed my mind. I, I think I was wrong the first time. You really should have eight. There's no finality either? There's, there's no double jeopardy? Well, d- double jeopardy typically would not a- apply to sentences. There are some... Uh, it's difficult for me to answer the question in the absence of knowing why it's back there. If, for example, it's back there because defendant's appeal took longer and he, he got a new... No, file. no, it, it's final. Uh, but uh, the, the judge uh, just said, I'm going to retain jurisdiction in this case to think about this a little longer. And he, and he waits four years. You can't do that under California law, Your Honor. But I'm assuming that you have some state procedure where this happens. I'm, I'm trying to ask whether or not there, the double jeopardy doesn't have, in, in your view, some component of finality so that the uh, defendant is, is, is not subject to the, to the, to the anguish, the agony uh, of, of having to go back before a sentencing judge and think he might get more. Certainly, I think that there's a component of finality in the Double Jeopardy Clause. I think it's the primary purpose of the Double Jeopardy Clause. But putting together this Court's decisions in Bullington and DeFrancesco, I I think what we get is is that one of the things that the Double Jeopardy Clause protects is the reasonable expectation of finality of the parties. On DeFrancesco, the Court looked at the existence of uh, a statute which said, government, you have the right to appeal a sentence. Mr. Gardner, it would help me to put a little flesh on these bones and to tell us exactly what was the proof deficiency here. It's a little fuzzy. I mean, it was a prior conviction based on a guilty plea, right? Yes, Your Honor. To a crime called, what, assault with a deadly weapon? It was a, it was a guilty plea to uh, assault. And, and, the, and the proof deficiency uh, requires a, a brief understanding of, of the particular allegation at issue here. And that is, in defendant's current offense, he was charged with having committed the prior assault. But that does not expose one under the California scheme to additional punishment. What exposes you under the California scheme as what triggers the strike provisions if you have a prior assault is the question of whether you used, personally used a weapon in that prior assault. Wasn't that charged as part of the indictment in, in, for, that, for that prior crime? In the original assault? Yes. It was, it was not either charged or established from the records of the prior conviction. And that was the proof deficiency in this case. Because what, would it, what would it have taken to supply the deficiency. It was something about there only being four pages, or and I forgot what it, exactly what it was, but I was trying to figure out where the prosecutor slipped here. The, pros- yeah. the, the prosecutor slipped here because what the prosecutor uh, introduced was a four-page document that did indeed show that the defendant was convicted of assault in 1992. What the prosecutor did not show is any documentation or any evidence whatsoever that the defendant personally used a weapon. And where would that document, documentation have come from? Now, under California law, the state has a limited universe of, of places to, to provide that information or to seek that information called the record of conviction. So the state would have had to look in the record of conviction to see if there was documentation to establish that in the 1992 assault... What's in the record of conviction? The transcript of the evidence? The, yes, the transcript of a preliminary hearing if it's a guilty plea situation, if it goes to this trial. Was, this was a guilty plea. So I'm, it, it, there were some pieces of paper that were missing, right, that the prosecutor didn't put in. And if he had put in those pieces of paper, there would, would have been no problem with that. Well, if, if, 
the pieces of paper that Your Honor is referring to were admissible, and if indeed they contained the information that was necessary to cure the insufficiency. Were they records of the very court that we were dealing with, or was there some other court? If the question is, was, was the 1992 assault conviction from the same superior court uh, in the current case, I don't know the answer, Your Honor. But, but, but the, the earlier question is, uh, was it just a piece of paper? I mean, I suppose one can say that in any insufficiency situation is that it, it could have been easily proven. I, I don't know the answer uh, as to well, whether... It can't be easily proven if there's a presumption of innocence that applies. You well, presume a man's innocent until there's evidence of the contrary, and there's no evidence of the contrary. Ultimately, that's the evidentiary failure in this case. But you're, you're saying there, wa- there was proof of a prior assault, that there was proof of that. The question as to whether the defendant committed a 1992 assault was indeed uh, established by the state. The only question was whether he personally used a weapon, and the state introduced no evidence to that. Your question. What about is, the fact that the the lawyer didn't contest it? I mean, the lawyer didn't say he didn't personally use it. The lawyer said a stick isn't a deadly weapon. Well, so no, no one's, no one's. There's a charge, assault with a deadly weapon. It's introduced by the state uh, as uh, uh, the uh, you know to satisfy the requirement, which is what uh, assault with a deadly weapon that you use personally. Yes. And then there is no objection on the ground of personal use. There's objection only on the ground that a stick isn't a deadly weapon. So why, I never understood why, given that circumstance, the California Intermediate Court could have held that there wasn't enough evidence. Okay, for, for two reasons. Yeah. First, the fact that there's no objection does not in any way undercut the state's burden to prove the, the charge beyond a reasonable doubt. That ultimately is the question. The reason the Court of Appeal correctly held, uh, and, and respondent has, has never even disputed the insufficiency, Your Honor, is that uh, an assault finding, even if, it's with, uh, even if it's assault with a deadly weapon, doesn't mean personal use because there's always the factor of aiding and abetting. You're but just it, was, as it was a single defendant case. I mean, that much was established. <laughs> that, right? that part was never established, Your Honor, at this trial. Absolutely not. In, a, in an informal colloquy before the hearing, the prosecutor said to the judge, well, judge, you know, this was a single defendant. But that was never introduced into evidence. No, but what was introduced into evidence, the issue is whether there was an assault with a deadly weapon. Is that right? The issue is whether the defendant personally used a weapon. Personally used a weapon. Now we have the following. He's convicted of assault with a deadly weapon. That's introduced. Second, the, the weapon involved was a stick. And now the question is, those two things, do they permit someone to conclude that he personally assaulted a person with a deadly weapon, particularly because nobody denies it? Well... If we had those those three things, I I will answer that question, but we don't have those things because at the first hearing, the state introduced no evidence that a stick was used. Remember, what happened at that first hearing was the judge said, I'm going to take judicial notice of the conviction. And the conviction was for assault with a deadly weapon. That in and of itself under California law under over a decade does not provide sufficient evidence because there could be aiding and abetting, someone else could have used the weapon, or there could have been infliction of great bodily injury. Then the, the, the court said, is there any other evidence? Prosecutor said, yes, I have a piece of evidence. I have Exhibit 1. That showed that the defendant had been convicted of assault. But it did not provide any evidence that a stick was used or that defendant was the one who used it. That was never introduced into evidence at the first hearing. And that's why, under state law, the California Court of Appeal held there was insufficient evidence after the Attorney General conceded it on appeal, Your Honor. Uh, So what exactly was presented? It was more than um, a guilty plea to... There was more information than simply that, that the defendant had pled guilty to assault. Is that not so? Yes, that's not so. There was nothing else presented, Your Honor. The four-page prison packet showed nothing but that defendant was convicted or Did pled guilty. Four pages to say. 
Well, it's a, it's a prison package, and it comes from the prison. It's not like the prosecutor uh, crafted it for this case. It's a standard document. It has fingerprints, often has fingerprints. It has uh, a picture. It has the nature of the conviction. Sometimes it has the prison of commitment. Uh, it, it's a standard package, not crafted for this case. And there would be no description of the crime beyond assault? Beyond, uh, in this case, Penal Code Section 245A1, I believe, was the provision, which, of course, is not sufficient in and of itself. And, and that's why we have this finding by the State Court of Appeal that was uh, agreed to by the Attorney General and has never been contested of insufficient evidence. I did want to briefly talk about one of the other purposes of the Double Jeopardy Clause. And there was an objection to that evidence being insufficient at the sentencing? There was no uh, argument on insufficiency of the evidence, but under state law, that is not necessary to raise insufficiency of the evidence on appeal, which was done, and the Court of Appeal said, you know, by gosh, you're right, there was insufficient evidence. So there is no question as to whether defense counsel under California law has to raise a sufficiency argument at trial. He or she does not. I did want to talk briefly about one other uh, of the policies underlying the Double Jeopardy Clause. As this court noted, I think in Burke's, uh, one of the other chief policies is the idea of preventing the state from refining its evidentiary presentation in successive trials. And that, that policy is directly implicated in this case, because after all, what did the state get from the Court of Appeal in this case? They thank, got you, a... thank you, Mr. Garner. Your time has expired. Uh, Mr. Glassman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the respondent asks this Court to confirm that the Double Jeopardy Clause does not apply to non-capital sentencing determinations. The Court has traditionally not applied the clause to non-capital sentencing determinations, uh, actually to, not to sentencing at all, and there are good reasons for reserving or limiting, I should say, the sole exception that has been recognized thus far by the Court and that is an but exception. You, you agree, then, that it would be a limitation, at least on, on the rule, uh, as, as we would understand it, if we go back to Bullington? Your Honor, it's our position that Bullington is self-limiting, that Bullington does not purport well, to... Well, De, Fran- I don't see how you can say that in the light of DeFrancesco, because DeFrancesco wasn't a capital uh, case, and, and if it had been the capital versus non-capital character, DeFrancesco would have been distinguished right then and there. On the other hand, uh, that isn't what, the court, what this court did. Uh, this court uh, distinguished it on, on the characteristics of the sentencing proceeding. So it seems to me that, uh, at least through DeFrancesco, that's not the way we were viewing. Well, Your Honor, I think more recently, uh, specifically in Caspari versus Boland, the court has described Bullington as, as uh, arising and based largely on the rationale that applies in the death penalty context. Your, your position is that it was Bullington that was a departure from the line of cases like Stroud. Yes, it is, Your Honor, because uh, it is our position that the ultimate inquiry in the double jeopardy context is whether a criminal offense is being adjudicated. The Fifth Amendment, after all, speaks in terms of a criminal offense. May I ask one question, Mr. Glassman? This case happens to involve an enhancement because of a prior act of uh, the defendant that was not adequately proved. If the enhancement had been based on the use of a gun instead, would your argument be precisely the same? Well, Justice Stevens, the court has allowed for enhancements that share elements of the, or aspects, I should say, of the underlying crime. so I don't know if that answered the question, but our argument 
generally, and I'll... Give me a good answer to the argument, yes or no, and I'm not... Yeah. I, I um, want to be sure I get what your answer is. Our argument is that, is yes. Yeah, that, that's what I... That, for example, use of a weapon is a typical element of a sentence enhancement. You, in other words, you don't rely on, on the fact that it, this might be characterized as a recidivism case as distinct, as, as any, of any special weight in your argument. Well, it, it, it's given weight in our view insofar as the court has generally decided that recidivism statutes do not present a double jeopardy concern. Right, but, but if you rely just on that, and we only decided that, then it would leave open the question whether your statute would, have, would be valid as applied to use of a firearm, for example. And, and that is why, Your Honor, our position ultimately is that the crucial concern is the guilt or innocence determination, that that is the concern, that is the idea of the double jeopardy right. and, clause as and described by... the question by. that's missing here is he was not proven to be guilty of precisely what needed to enhance, and in another example, he might not have been proven guilty of using a firearm, if you call it an, offense, an element of the offense rather than an enhancement. Well, there is disagreement, I think, in terms of the nature of this, of exactly what happened in this case, and, and perhaps, and this relates back to Justice Ginsburg's question, Justice Stevens, but if I could describe my view of how this originated in the first place, although... Yeah, before you get back into the facts, I, I would like to hear your, your view of it, but it seems to me you've overstated what we've held. We haven't held that recidivism does not raise double jeopardy concerns. We have held that if a recidivist statute is not an, is not an element of the offense, if it treats recidivism as an enhancement, that is constitutional. But we haven't said that every recidivism statute is automatically an enhancement, nor have we ever said that for purposes of the federal constitution it is an enhancement simply because the state chooses to call it an enhancement. No, no. What you have here is a situation in which the state calls it an enhancement, but both its effects and the trappings with, with which the court surrounds it uh, uh, do not look, it, it doesn't walk and talk like an, like an enhancement. It's just called that. Well, well, actually, Your Honor, it's our position that this is a traditional recidivism statute. The, the somewhat unique context of this case is that because California restricts the aggravating prior conviction to be a so-called serious felony, as described in California, there needed to be, in this case, an inquiry into whether it was a particular type of assault. But, but all of this arises after and only after the guilt determination is made. And returning to DeFrancesco, it, it's our view that DeFrancesco recognizes that the ordeal uh, that's described as part of the double jeopardy inquiry is an ordeal that extends until the conclusion of the guilt determination. You wouldn't deny, would you, that if, in fact, the existence of the three pre-existing felonies, if the, the fact that they exist of a certain sort or not, if each of those were an element of the offense, then I take it you would not deny the applicability of the double jeopardy clause. If the offense were the offense of the underlying ones, plus felony A, plus felony B, plus felony C, that's called super offense. Under those circumstances, I take it the double jeopardy clause would apply. Not a hard question. That, I, mean, I mean, the answer is yes or no. I believe the answer would be yes. All right. I think it would be yes, too. Has anyone in this case at any level ever argued 
that these extra three elements are, the three felonies are in fact elements of the offense. Your Honor, my understanding of the petitioner's argument is that the double jeopardy determination is, is based solely on whether or not the proceeding, which has been labeled a sentencing proceeding, and which we, of course, consider a sentencing proceeding, is in fact um, uh, so akin to a trial on guilt or innocence in terms of its structure. I know, he's, now, I know what he's arguing. Judge, I'm asking if he made it. a question that I think could be answered by yes. That, that is not the argument. That the argument that you have proposed. Has it ever been argued that these three things, the three extra felonies of a certain kind, their existence, that the need to have them is an element of the offense? I cannot recall a case that involves that particular. I'm asking if in this case no. it was not. The answer argued. is Thank no. You. The answer is no. And now you were going to tell us uh, what this deficiency in the evidence was and how that deficiency could have been supplied. Okay. Your Honor, in this case, the trial judge was reviewing a, a, or the sentencing judge, I should say, was reviewing a series of documents. And the judge, in the view of the appellate court in California, was not entirely precise as to the basis of the judge's determination of the prior conviction. There was a charge of a prior assault with a deadly weapon, and there was a guilty plea. Uh, the judge only formally announced that he was moving the document reflecting the conviction into evidence. Um, he used other words, such as judicial notice, to refer to his review of other documents. And as soon as he decided that the prior conviction had been established, he added uh, that lest there be any doubt, he, was, he, was, he had reviewed the court file. Now, the court file refers to the documents uh, that had been previously submitted to that court, and in this case, in fact, uh, there had been a prior hearing at which the petitioner's guilt, uh, the, the petitioner's eligibility under the statute would have been established by proof of his personal use. The, the, the court file that you refer to is something different than what Mr. Gardner referred to as the four-page thing? Yes, Your Honor. It's, it's our interpretation that the court file uh, ostensibly refers to the documents in that proceeding uh, that have been previously adjudicated. Are and you arguing that the evidence was sufficient to sustain the trial judge's sentence? Your Honor, I'm aware that the state courts have found that the evidence is insufficient. I'm, I'm not, but my but point... But you're not asking us to review that, are you? No, but this court has, in effect, reevaluated those kinds of determinations in... in by in, state courts, by... We, we second-guess the state court on its application of its own law to the facts in the record here? No, Your Honor, but I think, for example, Lockhart versus Nelson uh, indicates that the court evaluates the nature of the finding that was made to determine whether it's properly characterized, for example, as insufficient evidence or trial error. Uh, the same is true in Poland versus Arizona, which is a case uh, in the Bullington context. But no, we do not dispute uh, that the state courts have determined that there was insufficient evidence in this case. In our view, however, that entire analysis is confined, is confined to the sufficiency context which is concluded when this proceeding begins. I would also like to describe the nature of this proceeding because the petitioner's argument is that it, if it looks sufficiently like a trial on guilt or innocence, it is a trial on guilt or innocence, notwithstanding the fact that guilt has been resolved prior to the hearing in this case, and therefore, in our view, the double jeopardy clause uh, does not apply. In California, in these proceedings, the record is abbreviated. It is six pages in the excerpts here. Uh, the record is static and fixed under state law. The trier of fact is not allowed to look beyond the record in the underlying case. That is the original record. 
The defendant is on notice and aware of all potential evidence. Typically, no defense is offered, and none was offered here, as has been pointed out. And it is true that California has elected to provide additional procedural guarantees in these proceedings. Uh, but it is our view that because the guilt determination has been completed by the time of this event, as, as, uh, as Justice Blackman's majority opinion in DeFrancisco describes it, that is behind the defendant at the time of sentencing. There is no process here that is comparable to the determination of guilt or innocence. And in our view, that also distinguishes this case from Bullington versus Missouri. And that is to say that um, in Bullington, of course, the court held that the, the jury's de decision to sentence the defendant to life in a capital case constitutes an acquittal of death. And Justice Souter, I would agree with, with uh, your, your observation or the suggestion in your question that the inquiry in Bullington ultimately was, is there evidence of the sole issue the jury decides, namely death or life. And I submit that as a fundamentally different issue in, because in this case, unlike in the capital context, the jury in the petitioner's case was not the sentencer. The jury, it is true, decides a fact within the sentencing context, and that fact determines whether the judge can double the sentence. But the, I'm sorry, Justice Scalia. I was just going to say yes, but there, 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 are, there are points on the other side, too. And, and the points on the other side is that it's a fact that must be charged. It's a fact which is historical in nature as to which the jury has to say yes or no. It's a fact that has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and and these, these, in fact, are, are very trial-like determinations. They're very element-like determinations. So uh, it's, 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 uh, it seems to me that it's difficult on your side for that reason but, uh, but to say we can draw an easy categorical distinction here. The, the distinction that we would draw, though, Justice Souter, is that in Bullington, the court attaches significance to the fact that the only choice in the sentence is the choice made by that trier of fact. And in this case... That is, it is true, that is the only choice the jury makes, but that is not the choice that ultimately or definitively decides the sentence. Once the but jury... But do you take the position that in California, for example, Bullington wouldn't apply because the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the senator can always say, well, for reasons of, of justice, uh, I'm not going to apply this? Of course not, Your Honor, but that's because I'm not merely describing a process in California in which the judge... As, uh, decides to accept or reject the verdict or the decision of the jury. My point is that it is the judge in California in this non-capital context who arrives at the sentence. The judge decides to apply either the lower, the middle, or the aggravated term, and the judge decides whether to allow the strike. So it, is, it seems to me as fundamentally different than in Bullington in which the jury's decision decides the entire Event in the well, you're, you're certainly right there. Going back to an earlier uh, colloquy, if the argument had been made here that, in fact, this was an element because, you did, for the reasons I just ticked off, it, it seems to have some element characteristics, would you agree that there might be a reason for, uh, a, a very good reason for coming out against you, uh, not on the Bullington reasoning, but, uh, in fact, on, on the reasoning that what is really being charged here is, is, is an element, whether it's called that or not. So we might get the Bullington result for a different reason. I think I guess that I would disagree, Your Honor, because it seems to me that the the trial on the offense concern remains paramount in the double jeopardy context. But but with respect to your question, 
So there's just, then you're saying there's just, there's always a categorical distinction between offense and sentence, except in the capital area. I believe that's the lesson of, of Bullington, Your Honor. I believe that the court's holding in Bullington is that it is unique to the death penalty process to carry over or that the offense consideration survives. And, and returning to the court's opinion in Caspari versus Bolin, the court there has suggested that that it's that uniqueness. It is the uniqueness that Bullington describes as arising out of Furman versus Georgia. Mm -hmm. And the sentencing discretion that is required or certainly uh, certainly more important in the capital phase uh, is, not, is not at issue in this case. And that is why, in our view, uh, when Justice Blackmun's majority opinion in Bullington described a Hallmark's penalty trial as unique, he was referring to the uniqueness uh, of of the context of that case. We, we even, uh, our terminology even suggests that we, we, uh, we speak of innocence of the death penalty as though that particular penalty were, were a substantive offense. We never speak of innocence of any other sentencing factor, uh, just innocence of the death penalty. Yes, Your Honor, and the court does not, and, and I don't think, I don't understand analytically how one could be acquitted of a sentence. And that, that is, of course, the, the petitioner's argument, um, that, that this is somehow an acquittal, as though, if he is correct, the state would be foreclosed from alleging a future recidivism action, for example, or that in the context of a death penalty case, if the sole aggravator was another cr criminal offense, the acquittal or, or the, the, the decision of life would constitute an acquittal of that future crime. For these reasons, because this case fits squarely within the recidivism context or the sentencing context, I believe that the court's description in Caspari is significant here, and that is the court has observed in Caspari, which has been minimalized as a Teague versus Lane case, but in fact I think the Teague, the Teague analysis is not irrelevant here when the court in Caspari says that the determination, the prior determination of a sentence is an objectively verifiable fact based upon readily available but evidence. Teague doesn't apply to a case coming from a, from a state court, Mr. Gordon. Your Honor, I'm not suggesting that the Teague analysis controls the case uh, or is determinative, but my point is simply that when the court said in Teague that in terms of whether or not double jeopardy applied to non-capital sentencing, Justice O'Connor's majority opinion clearly says that the court's prior precedents had gone in exactly the opposite direction. I think that that observation in Caspari was, was correct, as was the court's observation in Caspari, unlike the concerns in the double jeopardy context, that when dealing with non-capital sentencing, and particularly the prior offender, there is an increased accuracy in verifying the record in the prior case. California has, has implemented a variety of procedures, all of which are discretionary, to make this a fair proceeding. None of the rights that California has granted are required, and in our view, those rights do not constitutionalize this event or otherwise graduate it into a double jeopardy context that it would not be, be in unless these hallmarks are present. Although they may elevate it to, uh, uh, to being an element of the crime, in which, in which event they would elevate it to all the other things. Your Honor, I don't... It's been made that that argument was not presented. I, and, and I don't believe that their argument, in other words, that the presence of these hallmarks is directed at the, at the element issue. In other words, the emphasis that... Well, the, but why can't I an answer the question that way? The question presented is, do, does the double jeopardy clause apply to non-capital sentencing proceedings that have all the hallmarks of a trial on guilt or innocence? Why can't I answer that? Say, yes, when 
those hallmarks in their context demonstrate that what was at issue was an element of the crime. Isn't that a fair way to answer the question presented? It, 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 it's a fair way to answer it, perhaps, but again, my, my reading of case, cases such as McMillan versus Pennsylvania indicate that it is not the shared elements test that is determinative and that in our context, in the double jeopardy analysis... Why is it a fair element if it's not in the case, elements of the offense? Why is it a fair reading if the issue of elements of the offense is not in this case? May I answer the question, Your Honor? Double jeopardy, in my view, speaks to guilt only. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Glassman. Uh, Mr. Roberts, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We believe the Court should not extend Bullington versus Missouri beyond capital sentencing. It should instead reaffirm the well-established rule that the pronouncement of sentence in non-capital cases is not accorded the same finality as an acquittal of substantive criminal charges. Bullington turned on two factors, each of which was essential to the outcome. First, the sentencing proceeding at issue had all the hallmarks of a trial on guilt or innocence. Second, the ordeal and anxiety posed by capital sentencing are uniquely severe and invariably as great as those posed by a typical trial on guilt or innocence. That's not the case with non-capital sentencing, so a bar on resentencing is not warranted. The court's cases... Well, it can be. I mean, so you say, what was the last part of it? Uh, that the consequences are just as severe as the consequences on guilt or innocence? That they're uniquely severe and invariably as great as... Invariably. Well, okay, not invariably, but, but in some cases, uh, the, uh, the so-called enhancement factor can, uh, uh, can uh, up the ante on the sentence uh, tenfold. Uh, it, it, still is not, it still is not a choice between life and death. Uh, the prisoner, is, in, in all those cases, his life is not at stake. And, uh, and uh, it wouldn't make sense to look at, a, at each particular sentencing, at each particular sentencing procedure to evaluate not only whether it has the hallmarks, but also whether the anxiety is so great uh, that it ought to trigger double jeopardy. That would be a, an administrative nightmare. The, the courts, besides, the court's cases make clear that the central purpose of the double jeopardy clause is to protect defendants against being repeatedly subjected to the ordeal and anxiety of a trial on guilt or innocence and against the risk of erroneous conviction, not to guard against repeated sentencing. If, if it did apply, I'm not certain of the answer to this. I'm having, suppose that you lost this case. Is the consequence of it, I could see the consequence of it would be that when a person appealed and lost on appeal on the ground of insufficient evidence, you couldn't you're stuck with that. Is there any other consequence? Uh, we would uh, contend not, although there might be an argument uh, that uh, under the collateral estoppel line of uh, double jeopardy that uh, we would, that the state would be bound in future. They are anyway, aren't they, under collateral estoppel or not? I mean, if the state tried to, to, to uh, punish a person again, say for a somewhat different crime, but there was a factual issue that was identical, the same issue, aren't they bound by it or not? Uh, litigated between the two parties. They wouldn't be bound uh, necessarily uh, because uh, there would be a question of whether this determination in the sentencing context um, has all the uh, 
You mean not as a constitutional matter? No, I mean, yeah. I mean, what happens if, if in fact, they have another trial, you know, another punishment, another sentencing phase on a different matter, and it turns out that, that there's a factual issue that's identical? The, the, the very same fact. That, that would be a rule of uh, state. Yeah, but don't all the states, do they or not? How does it work? Um, I, I think that it's the case with, uh, with sentencing determinations like this and recidivist determinations that it's a new, that the state has a new chance to, to uh, establish that true finding. It's, it hasn't been traditionally the case that that would bind the state in, in future cases. The state loses the first time in the sentencing proceeding where the issue is what happened on the night of July 5, 1988. At 6 in the morning, did he have a gun or not? And then he commits another crime, and in sentencing it becomes relevant again, and the state isn't bound. They can bring it up again, try and get him again. My understanding um, from what the California Supreme Court uh, stated to be the rule is that, that's, that, the, that the case with uh, recidivist findings is that uh, the findings may be alleged again in future proceedings. Do you think there's a due process clause issue there? There, uh, there certainly might be limitations under the due process clause on what would be uh, permissible, but that, uh, you know, obviously that's not the question here that hasn't. Well, DeFrancesco talked about an expectation of finality and pointed out that there, uh, the defendant knew that there was a, a proceeding where the uh, sentence could be appealed and that there might be more hearings. Um, but if, if you uh, have, have a procedure in, in which uh, the sentence is final. Uh, the, the appellate court uh, affirms the sentence, uh, and, and then there's some proceeding, new proceeding to reopen it. it. It seems to me that that does maybe indicate uh, that an expectation of finality is, 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 is being disappointed. That's not this case, I don't think. Uh, correct. It's not, it's not this case, Justice Kennedy. Uh, and uh, we would submit that the expectation of finality that's created only goes so far as uh, the state law uh, that creates it. Uh, I think it's, it's important to recognize that the, the rule advanced by petitioner that a trial like hallmarks at sentencing automatically triggers a bar on resentencing places too little value on society's interest in accurate and appropriate punishment and too great a value on defendants' interest in finality. Uh, and it's been pointed out um, it, w- it might discourage states from providing procedural protections at, uh, at sentencing because they wouldn't be free to do so without also triggering double jeopardy protection. Uh, Finally, uh, just to briefly address the, uh, the issue that came up on uh, the question of uh, Almandaris Torres, in addition to the fact that, that, that it hasn't been argued here, uh, I think it would be inappropriate for the same reason that it would be uh, inappropriate to have a rule that uh, triggered double jeopardy uh, by the procedural protections. It would be inappropriate to have a rule that said that um, the state has to make things an element of the offense when it decides it wants to provide certain procedural protections because that's forcing it to trade off its interest in accurate and appropriate punishment against uh, its decision to afford uh, defendants certain protections to make the sentencing proceeding more fair. in, uh, in essence, uh, the reading of Bullington that's advanced by petitioner here is as unworkable and unwise as it is unwarranted by precedent and principle, and we would ask that the court uh, should affirm the judgment of the California Supreme Court. There Thank you, Mr. Roberts. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.